So we're talking about sin, and this is the last week we'll talk about sin. By way of review, very quickly from the last two weeks, the definition of sin, it's a failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And the standard is not how, is not our ability, it's not how well we can do, the standard is God's own moral nature. And we fall short of that. We don't conform to his holiness and his purity. And uh, so since sin requires purity of heart as well as actions, then the desire to steal or commit adultery or do other sins is also sin in God's sight. And we looked at some verses in that regard. And so it's not correct to say that feelings are morally neutral or attitudes are morally neutral. David prays, let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We talked about where sin came from. God is not to be blamed for sin. Adam and Eve willfully sinned. Before that, Satan and demons willfully chose to disobey God, and they are to be blamed. Uh, But it seems consistent with Scripture to say that God, in some way that's mysterious to us, ordained that sin would come about. But through the voluntary choices of moral creatures, and we are held responsible. It's all from two weeks ago. Why then did Adam and Eve sin? Really, it didn't make sense, and that's a characteristic of sin. It ultimately doesn't make sense. It doesn't do us any good. It's irrational, but we sin anyway. Then we talked about the doctrine of inherited sin last week. Inherited guilt, we're counted guilty because of Adam's sin. And then we have inherited corruption, where we have a sinful nature because of Adam's sin, and that's passed down uh, through the generations. And then we got into point D on the outline, the bottom of your page here, actual sin in our lives. And this was the uh, kind of the end of the time last week. All people are sinful before God. The Bible says that again and again, 1 John 1, 8 to 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, it's at this point that we need care and precision in thinking about sin. We can make an error in two different ways. We can become careless about sin, saying, well, everybody's sinful, we're all forgiven, so who cares? And that leads to an error that kind of in theological terms has been called license. That is, people imagining they have a license to sin. You've got a license to drive, you know, that's a license. All right, sometimes that's been called a license to sin. And that's a mistake that Christians can fall into. Um, okay, I'm forgiven, and so it doesn't matter what I do, and then your life never really progresses in holiness, and you don't grow in your walk with the Lord, and there are all sorts of negative consequences. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So that's, that's one mistake that can come from saying that everybody's sinful. We can become careless with sin. The other mistake is... To become so focused on our sin, we become overly guilt-ridden and just weighed down and depressed, and we think we can't do anything good. And I think I gave the example of a speaker I heard one time where um, he was in his 50s and been a Christian for probably 40 years. And he just kept giving bad examples about himself, about how he'd messed up on this and done wrong on this, and he couldn't get this right, and he couldn't relate to his wife right and everything. And I said to him later, I said, you know You're a mature believer. And if all you give is bad examples about yourself, what are people going to think? Where does that leave them? No hope. And so the other mistake is a kind of 
excessive focus on sin so that we become really negative about ourselves and discouraged and don't think we can do anything to please God. And that really hinders our relationship with God too. In the Christian life, I think the Lord wants us to start each day saying, Lord, I, I, I want to please you today. And I don't know if you take a concordance and look up please and pleasing. There are a number of cases in the New Testament where Paul seeks to do what is pleasing to God. He seeks to please God. And I think that though there is <clears throat> sin that remains in our lives and we're not going to be perfect, yet I think that we need to have a positive um, attitude toward the idea that the Holy Spirit in us has changed our hearts and we are able to be obedient. So there are two mistakes that can be made. <clears throat> with regard to um, the fact that uh, all people are sinful before God. It shouldn't make us careless, and it shouldn't make us overly concerned with um, our sin before God. Um, does our ability limit our responsibility? No, I talked about that in the era of Pelagianism last week. And we talked about infants and the question of uh, infants, um, uh, what happens if infants die bef uh, before they're old enough to understand the gospel, and talked about the fact that the pattern of Scripture is that God brings the, the children of believers to himself many, many times. Um, it's a pattern of God throughout Scripture to save the children of those who believe in him. Um, and that was where we ended last week. It was, a good, it was a good discussion. We come now to this question. Are there degrees of sin? And my answer to that is, Yes and no. Um, in, it depends on what we mean by are there degrees of sin. In one sense, all sins are the same. And in another sense, some sins are more serious than others. And here's how we distinguish that. First, in terms of legal guilt, any one sin makes us guilty before God. Adam and Eve found that out. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That one sin, taking the forbidden fruit and eating it, which God told them not to do, that gave them the status of being guilty before God. That gave them the status of being sinners. And of course, involved in that act of disobeying God was a kind of complex thought process that involved doubting God's word, thinking they were a better standard of right and wrong than God was, and trying to exalt themselves and be like God rather than be subject to him as creator. And really their hearts were changed in terms of rebellion against God's law. There was a lot that went on, but that one sin still made them legally guilty before God, and God visited punishment upon them as a result. And Romans 5.16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So, I mean, even it's never true that there's a person in the world that has committed only one sin. But even if it were, that still would make the person legally guilty before God. So in that sense, there aren't degrees of sin. Any one sin makes us guilty before God. But there's something else that we can say. Oh, wait a minute. One more verse on that. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it, James says in James 2. 
He who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. And I think James is thinking of God's law, moral law, as a summary of the moral character of God. And by breaking one part of that law, you kind of contradict or act in a way contrary to the whole moral character of God. And in that way, you become guilty of all of it, he's saying. But now, having said that, I think just when we really think through the, the actions that people do that are sinful, there are some ways in which some sins are more serious than others, and they're more harmful. And I, I picked out two, two ways in that, in that they are different, and that is in terms of results in our lives and in terms of harming our relationship with God, some sins are, more, are, are worse than others. Um, um, in terms of results in our lives... If I, um, if, I, if I look at my neighbor's new convertible and think, I'm jealous of him, I'd like to steal that from him, well, in my heart, I'm coveting. That's breaking the Ten Commandments. But if I wait till the time that he's not looking and I go steal it, <laughs> that's even worse because the attitude has broken forth into an action that harms him because I've deprived him of his new convertible. And it has consequences for me and my reputation and the reputation of the gospel and other things like that. So I think we could say that though it's wrong to have a heart attitude that desires sin, it's more wrong to actually do the sin. Or we could think of um, some other examples. Um, if, uh, if someone becomes a new believer and um, is really excited about his faith in Christ and begins going back to the bar he used to hang out at every night and witnessing to all his friends in the bar, that's wonderful, we're thankful for that, but on the fourth or fifth night, somebody just says something and he loses his temper and he hauls off and slugs the guy and gets in a fight. And <clears throat> well, you know, that's, that's wrong. He shouldn't have done that. But he's a brand new believer. On the other hand, if the chairman of the elder board at Scottsdale Bible Church, sorry, Jack, <laughs> goes and gets in a fight and it gets in the newspaper, or, or, the, or the senior pastor or something like that after being a Christian for a long time, the damage to the gospel is, is much greater. Um, because, uh, and, and the reproach of the, of the gospel is much greater. It's more harmful. And I think... God actually takes it more seriously because of this principle to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And uh, we've seen that lately. I mean, I, I, I think that the, um, the, the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, by uh, visiting, a, uh, having a relationship with a homosexual, and this came uh, into public prominence, was a tremendously sad thing because it brought great reproach on the gospel. Uh, and uh, the word evangelical, and made people think, well, all those Christians are hypocrites and things like that. So I think in terms of results, um, not only is there a difference between desiring sin and doing sin, but there's also a difference in the person doing the sin and how much the consequences are. Um, and uh, I think there's application 
in that area to all of us who have been Christians for more than just a short time. As you've gone on in the Christian life and you have more of a maturity before God, he expects more of you. And if you would do something wrong that brings reproach on you, it also brings reproach perhaps on your family, perhaps on your church and other things. So there's a, there's a high sense, higher sense of responsibility. Pammy? Yeah. Well, um, so Pammy, and I'll just repeat the question that you've been uh, ministering to a pastor friend, not in this area, who um, had, it had become known that he was engaged in homosexual conduct. And he's saying, well, why does the church condemn this more than other sins? Um, and for instance, not taking care of your body physically uh, with that example, or I suppose um, um, he might have added adultery maybe, but then that would be taken seriously, wouldn't it? Or, or drunk driving. See, if a pastor got convicted of drunk driving, I think, see, I, I think he'd just be, it would be a loss of ministry. So I think that it is... There is a judgment call to be made by Christians when it becomes known that people are involved in certain sins. And, um, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, I'm going to have to think through that some more because sin of gluttony you're you're talking about. Um, I'm just... I'm not sure. I I think there's a distinction that people make with action that is willfully chosen, that is clearly contrary to the laws of God. And I think in the case of health issues, people are not as clear what the factors are that are involved. What about God? What about God? Well, he knows, and he knows our hearts, doesn't he? So, yeah. Is homosexuality or adultery a greater sin? Is I sin gossiping or slander? Okay. Um, Pammy's asking me a question that I'm not sure how to answer. So I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't. Is is homosexuality or adultery a greater sin than gossip or slander? I think we should put it in the context of, are there more harmful consequences? And then we have to make a judgment call on that. But let me go on and look at some of these verses. Um, <clears throat> Jesus, <clears throat> in John 19.11, said, this is saying to Pilate, the Roman procurator, the governor, Jesus saying to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been granted you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. I think he's talking about Caiaphas, the high priest. I used to think it was maybe Judas that he delivered over to him, but, uh, but perhaps more directly, Caiaphas, who wrongly condemned Jesus, though he had done nothing wrong, and gave him over to the Roman governor. Now, I think what is happening here is Jesus is saying that Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders had seen and heard and interacted with Jesus over months and years, and they knew a lot about him, and they had greater responsibility. Pilate, <clears throat> he didn't know much about Jesus at all. All of a sudden, this thing was thrown into his lap, and he had to make a decision. <clears throat> but Jesus says, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. 
there's a distinction in sins. Ezekiel 8.6, God shows Ezekiel the sins of the people of Israel in the temple area and then in the temple, various parts of it. And he says, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. And then verse 6, you will see still greater abominations. And then he shows him something else. And verse 13, you will see still greater abominations. And then verse 15, you will see still greater abominations than these. So it looks like an increasing level of seriousness of conduct in dishonoring God and, and idolatry. Um, Matthew 5.19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus talks about the least of these commandments, I think he implies that there are lesser and greater commandments, some that God takes more seriously than others, without specifying what they are. Oh, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now he's saying they're both sin, but tithing a little bit of the mint that grows in your garden or the dill that grows in your garden Jesus says that's not a weighty matter of the law compared with justice and mercy and faithfulness, large areas of concern with how we treat other people. So I'm just saying that there are passages that talk about degrees of sin. And um, then there's a whole set of verses in the Old Testament that talks about willful versus unintentional sin. Sometimes people... They do something that's wrong, but they really didn't understand that it was wrong. And then later they found out it was wrong, but they, they, they didn't have good training or didn't have understanding beforehand. Or sometimes we get in a situation where we do what we think was right, and then we look back on it and we say, oh, why did I do that? That was stupid. But you, you did it, in a sense, unintentionally. You didn't intend to forget your wife's birthday. <laughs> oh, no, that would be a greater sin. <laughs> okay, you didn't intend to forget or, or uh, this or something, but, but you did it, and it was, an, it was an oversight. You'd failed to keep a promise, but that's not, I think, as serious as where you knew it was going to be wrong, and you went ahead in a headstrong way and did it anyway. So here are some passages on that. Leviticus 4.2, speak to the people of Israel, saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things, and then it gives some penalty for that. And Leviticus 4.13, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, etc. And then Leviticus 5.17, if anyone sins doing any of the things by the Lord's commandment that ought not to be done and he did not know it, then he realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. But in all those cases, if you look in the context of Leviticus, the penalty for those things is less than if you sinned intentionally. But the person who does anything with a high hand, or there are other passages that talk about doing things with a stiff neck. In other words, you won't bow before God, but your neck is stiff and you're just arrogant. Whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, that person shall be cut off from among his people, Numbers 15.30. And there are other passages like that. Well, so, now, hmm. what makes something worse than others in God's sight? Not minimizing the fact that that, uh, that all sin is serious before God and it dishonors him. Well, I think 
the results in terms of harm to others, the uh, results in terms of bringing reproach on the church or on the gospel, um, and the level of maturity of the person, and uh, God holds more mature Christians more responsible, and um, to some extent this attitude of heart, whether it's a willful sin or something that's done uh, sort of unintentionally. Now, having said all that, I'm not sure what to say about individual situations. Is gospel... Hmm. There is in 1 Corinthians this passage where Paul says about visiting a prostitute. 1 Corinthians 6. Mm, okay, good. Thank you, Susie. 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. For he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Um, Paul seems to be saying there's an additional component of sexual sin that's in a way more strongly dishonoring the Holy Spirit within us. Um, I'm not sure what more to make of that. Uh, I do think... Um, that Christian leaders who've been found guilty of embezzlement are out of them because they've betrayed the trust that the church placed in them. If they're guilty, as I said, of drunk driving, uh, I think that would be a betrayal of the trust that the church had placed in them. Homosexuality, adultery, the same. Um, and it happens every once in a while that, that uh, you see in the newspaper someone falsified his or her resume and said... Oh, I got a degree from such and such a school, but they checked and, you, and he didn't. Um, that's a misrepresentation of truth, and people usually will lose a job because of that. Those seem to be things that are willfully done, and they're, they're conscious choices that have been made after some premeditation, aren't they? They've been planned for. Um, and they seem to betray the trust that the church has put in the person in a way um, in a way that I think the church takes more seriously. I think, Pammy, and by raising this, I think that probably if there were other situations that came up where, say, a Christian leader, an elder, a pastor, a um, Sunday school teacher, uh, had been known to gossip, say, or pass on false rumors about someone, I think that the people in leadership would have to evaluate that and say, do we think this is serious enough to remove the person from responsibility? And it's a judgment call in each case. I'm not sure what more to say about that. We just wonder at sexual boys. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and John's been doing some research and reading some books and all. And I don't know why. I, I, 
I, I know that young man can come to Christ. Right. Absolutely. And yep. then, and then, it, absolutely. Without, but, but he needs to see his sin so that he can turn yep. from it. But yep. that's not, he doesn't have to do that beforehand. The Holy Spirit will help him yep. do that. But I don't know. I just, there's. Well, um, I, I think that in thinking about specific sins and how we interact with people involved in those sins, it's good to get a close analogy. And it seems to me that an analogy to dealing with someone who's involved in homosexual conduct is someone who's involved in heterosexual immoral conduct. How would we uh, interact with someone who's living in adultery or something like that, committing adultery? So um, those are helpful. I'm going to go on. I'm not sure I can say anything more at that point. OK, what is the benefit of this? Hmm, besides that you give me questions that I cannot answer and I'm stumped about. What is the benefit of this distinction of knowing that there are differences in sin in terms of results in our lives and relationship with God? Is there any good that comes from making the distinction? Oh, I can think of three or four things. What's your name again? James. James? They haven't gotten me a name tag yet. Okay. What's the benefit? Uh, it, it helps us judge. Um, it helps us judge uh, how to when to enact church discipline or how we should uh, just interact with that person. Yep. Okay. Helps us know when to uh, take steps for church discipline, and that's a question for an elder board to take. Okay. Uh, and connected to that is, it helps you know a little bit when to say something to another person or not. Um, just a, a, a slip of the tongue or a careless word or something, you might just say, I'll overlook it. it was, but, but if someone's outright lying, you say, oh, there's more serious and there's consequence here. And you deal with it. Dealing with bringing up children. <clears throat> it helps us to know that there are times when you discipline and there are times you say, hey, that's just being a kid. So, okay, any other benefits to knowing there are um, levels of seriousness of sin, degrees of sin? Any other benefits to that? Strength. Hmm? Strength. For strength? Restraint. Oh, restraint. Okay, explain that a little bit, Jack. It restrains us from acting out. Okay. It restrains us from acting out on um, sin. Okay, good. It restrains. So, so you can say, okay, I know I'm coveting my neighbor's convertible, but I shouldn't be doing that. Okay, but. You can't say, oh, well, I've already stolen it in my heart. I might as well steal it for good. Uh, it, it restrains us, but it keeps us from getting into a mistaken uh, reasoning that way. Okay, what else, Laverne? Just draw closer to the Lord with our Okay. Admitting that we have no power over this and going to okay. him for our, the okay. power. Okay, draw us closer to the Lord. Spirit. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's something else, yeah, uh, Ev? Okay, go ahead. Um, it helps you be more transparent, um, both with other people about if if you care to be in a way with about the seriousness of sin and uh -huh. what it can do it, okay. it, as it disrupts and and um, ruins your life, okay. and also in your relationship with God, if you're transparent with Him, okay, in just realizing again about how destructive it's been in yeah. your life. Okay, good. Helps you be more transparent, Susie. Knowing there are degrees of sin can help us know God 
-hmm. What are his priorities? And it okay. produces in us a, a fear of him and awe. Okay, good. Good, good. Okay. Um, um, Paul, in the back, that would be the last one. Or Frank, did you have? No. Okay. Yeah, I th go ahead. In, in our judging of others, I mean, there's lots of scripture that talks about, you know, looking at our sin before we look at okay. someone else's fall yeah. indiscretion. Right. The log in our eye. Yeah, good. That's really helpful. I think it can give us a more generous attitude toward other people, realizing, okay, nobody's perfect and people do slip up from time to time, but let's not just focus on one little tiny thing when the person's whole life is really being very beneficial to others. And um, I think that's good. One other thing, I think, in the area of civil government, um, it's right to make laws against stealing, but not laws against coveting. Okay? That kind of thing. Uh, so it's, it's, it's right to make laws against murder, but not laws against being angry with someone in your heart. You can't do that. Uh, civil government can actually say there are some things that have more serious consequences. So I think there are some benefits to that. Oh, yes, one other thing. It keeps us from beating up on ourselves emotionally and psychologically for just some little mistake that we made a long time ago. I think we ask for forgiveness, it's done, let's go on with life, that kind of thing. So, Okay, now, what happens when a Christian sins? Oh, E.G., sorry, go ahead. I just, one of the things that, about this issue that I wonder about, and that is if we don't, if our nature doesn't, uh, cause us to evaluate the seriousness of sin based upon the results. In other words, we view it from our perspective yep. rather yep. than God's. Okay, thank you for saying that. There is a danger in what I've said in that it could make us minimize the seriousness of sins of our heart that really uh, grieve the Holy Spirit and, and cause sorrow to God and Okay, I, thank you. That's, that's helpful. What happens when a Christian sins? Well, now, I'm trying to think of some examples. I don't think any of you in this class ever sin, but, no, I don't know. But, but, I'm, but I'm wondering, just speaking to a group of mature believers in Christ, well, what are the things that you might be tempted to do or might do that... You'd think, well, I'm not sure if this is right or wrong, but I'll do it. And I don't know, but where the, is there a willful choice to do something you know is wrong? Not saying anything, I don't want to say anything about this class, but, I, but just my experience of the Christian world in general, what kinds of things might uh, Christians be tempted to, to do, thinking, well, it won't matter a lot. Um, just lie a little bit about previous work experience when applying for a job. Just distort the truth about a competitor for your own advantage, or distort the truth about a co-worker for your own advantage. Just pass along a delicious rumor of wrongdoing that you've heard from someone, or even embellish it, even though you don't know that it's true. I think that can be really harmful. Or just say, I never promised that, when you know in your mind you did promise it. Or just watch a little bit of pornography or just pad an expense report a little bit with expenses that wouldn't be reimbursed if they were known, 
or allowing heart attitudes to fester and grow within, attitudes of bitterness or jealousy or other kinds of things that are contrary to, to God's laws. I don't know if those are good examples or not. Um, temptations to pride, to selfishness, temptations to, I think, laziness um, in obeying the Lord. Um, I, I don't know. And maybe that doesn't affect any of you. And maybe I'm just I'm just missing um, what I'm saying. But I'm saying not, not things that you do inadvertently, but what happens when you know something is wrong to do and you do it thinking, oh, it won't matter? Are there consequences in our lives? Or could these things lead to a pattern of more serious uh, actual, more serious actions that might even bring us into trouble with the law or destroy our family or something like that? Because it's those little things that lead to bigger things. Well, what happens when a Christian sins? Well, I think the first thing we have to say is our legal standing before God is unchanged. Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15.3. We still are forgiven. is isn't that we've lost our salvation or anything like that. We're still forgiven and we stand forgiven before God and we're thankful for that. And the whole Christian life is one of God's grace. In spite of our shortcomings, we stand in God's grace and we're thankful. And I want to emphasize that. And that's, that's just the foundational truth of the gospel and we can't neglect that. But having said that, is there damage to our life? Yes, I think so. Our fellowship with God is disrupted. Our fellowship with God is disrupted. And our Christian life is damaged. For instance, Ephesians 4.30 says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, and then is he going to work in us to minister to others, or work in us to guide us, or work in us to help us in our prayers? Not, not, not as much if he's grieved. Uh, Hebrews 12:6, the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For they disciplined us, earthly fathers, Hebrews 12:10, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So we, we grieve the Holy Spirit, we fall under God's fatherly discipline because he doesn't want us to act that way again. Oh, or Jesus in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. We can fall under discipline, and that isn't pleasant. That's, we, we, we want to avoid that. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, when a Christian sins, though he does not fall from the state of justification, he falls under God's fatherly displeasure. Fatherly means we're still his children. He still loves us. He still cares for us. Displeasure means he's not happy with what we've done. And we don't want to fall under God's fatherly displeasure. We don't want to live in a state of God's fatherly displeasure. We want to be in a state of him being pleased with us. So what we do then when we sin and we know we've done something wrong, first thing is confess it to God and say, Lord, I am sorry. I should not have done that. Will you forgive me? That is not asking for justification again. That's not asking for changing our legal status eternally before God. It's not asking to give us back a salvation that we've lost. It's just saying, Lord, will you please restore the relationship that is broken? I know I've grieved you as my heavenly Father. Will you please make it right? Will you forgive me? And Jesus tells us to pray that daily. 
probably expecting that we need to pray that daily. Mm, Forgive us our sins and then be thankful that he will. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number two, another consequence, our Christian life and our fruitfulness in ministry are also damaged. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I think that means if we stray away from the Lord and begin to walk in disobedience to him, we're not abiding or remaining in that close relationship with him, and there'll be damage in our Christian lives. Paul in 2 Timothy 2, 20-21, gives an example of a house that has different kinds of dishes. Good china and a wooden scrub bucket. And so he says in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver for fancy dinners, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable, some for mopping the floor, and some for serving to honored guests, honorable and dishonorable vessels. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, He will be a vessel for noble use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. That that is a a major um, restraint on my life when I'm tempted to do something wrong. There's something in my heart that says, Lord, I, I don't want to be a vessel for dishonorable use. I want to keep my life pure so that you are able to use me. And, and I know if I were to do something, willfully do something wrong, contrary to God's will, he may just withdraw his hand of blessing on my life. And um, any ministry that I might have been involved in might just fail and come to nothing. And I don't want that to happen. I want to be a vessel for noble use. And so for all of us in the ministry that you have to your neighbors or to your family or to other areas of the church where you are ministering, in the men's ministry, the women's ministry, ministering to children, ministering in the counseling area, or whatever you're doing, you want don't you want to be a, a vessel for noble use, for honorable use, that is one that the, the Lord will use? Well, purify yourself then from things that are dishonoring to him so you're ready to be used by him. Paul says, if you yield yourselves or present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He's writing to Christians. He's saying, you can give in to sin, yield yourself, present yourself to sin, but it's leading the wrong direction. It's leading in a destructive direction, bringing kind of a a tendency toward death in your life rather than a tendency toward growing in holiness and greater fellowship with God. 1 Peter 2.11, brothers, uh, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Uh, The the word for wage war here is a word that is used often of soldiers fighting in battle. And Peter is saying if you're cherishing sinful passions, that is a hatred against someone, a bitterness, a jealousy, a lust, a coveting, if you're cherishing sinful passions in your heart, Those are not neutral. Those are waging war against your soul. In other words, they're bringing spiritual harm to your life. They're like little soldiers inside you with swords chopping away at your spiritual health. They're waging war against your soul. They're harming you by allowing those sinful passions to fester and to to remain in you they're, they're, um, they're harming your soul. They're harming your spiritual life. They're harming your walk with God. So there's damage. 
And I think if we become involved in disobedience to the Lord, we suffer loss of heavenly reward. Paul says the work that we've done in this life will be tested on the last day, tested by fire. And if anyone's work is burned up, he himself will suffer loss, though he will be saved, but only as through fire, 1 Corinthians 3.15. Or 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That is... We're going to heaven, we're forgiven as believers, but there's going to be an evaluation that God will carry out of what we have done in this life. And uh, there will be degrees of reward in heaven. And uh, if we've given in to sin and lost opportunities for, uh, for being obedient to the Lord, then, um, then we'll give account to that, of that before the Lord. And, and that's a loss of heavenly reward. Then I think there's one more thing, and I just mentioned this in passing, but I think there's a danger that someone could give in to patterns of sin again and again in his or her life and keep on going to a Bible-believing church or an evangelical church and kind of say the right doctrines, but, but the person's life is just filled with all sorts of things contrary to God's will, and then I think we've got a danger there of unconverted evangelicals, that is, people who say they're evangelicals, but, um, but just have the right doctrines, but their life is a mess. What should happen is uh, uh, that we should be growing in the fruit of the Spirit, but a consistent pattern of disobedience to Christ with a lack of the fruit of the Spirit is a warning signal. What should be evident is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. But if, 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 uh, if there's a person who's going to a Bible-believing church and instead of love is just exhibiting hate, instead of joy is just all... Uh, can, what's the opposite of joy? Um, dis despair and anxiety. Peace is just stress and anxiety and stirring it up in others. Patience is impatient and short-tempered. Kindness, but is not kind, but is mean. Goodness is <laughs> the opposite of being good, I guess, of being bad to people. Faithfulness is betraying uh, his word and being unfaithful. And, and gentleness, no, is harsh. Self-control is uncontrolled. If all those, the opposite of those things are manifesting in the person's life, then, then you're saying, well, wait a minute. Where is there evidence that the Holy Spirit is really at work? John says, whoever said, 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. I think that means as a pattern of life is a liar, and the truth is not in him. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And 1 John 2 says people went out from us, but uh, it showed they weren't of us. I'm going to hurry on here. Oop, that I'll stop. Stop there. Question on that for a minute. I've got one more topic to cover before we're done. Comment. Well, that was a lot. I forgot your name. Yep. Brian. Thank you. In light of uh, what you had just were saying here about um, Christians, from what I'm taking here, Christians should be exhibiting a gradual increase of fruit, good fruit in their life and so forth. Yet, um, it seems like most Christians uh, want to go to the latter half of Romans chapter 7, where Paul is talking about the struggle. and point to that and say, look, this is a carnal Christian or something of that sort, they can't have a consistent life of rebellion and so forth and yet be a Christian. And um, it, it just seems very contradictory. I tend to hold on the other view that he's describing his life leading up to, uh, up to his conversion where God is convicting him and so forth, but yet 
you know, nevertheless, he was an unbeliever. Yeah. And I was just curious what your viewpoint was. A couple of things. I do think that in Romans 7, Paul is describing what he would be like without the Holy Spirit within, just trying to overcome sin on his own. But that's a hard question that commentators disagree on. Everybody agrees that we have struggle with sin in the Christian life. And so that's, you know, I, I want to agree with that. Then there's a question of, well, you know, what do we say about a person that is living in disobedience? There are people who are just, I don't know, living in outright crime and, and you know, just dis flagrant disobedience to all of God's laws, and I think there's no evidence of conversion in their lives. There are people who are living lives of godliness and holiness. We can say, hey, there's a lot of ground for assurance. In between, there are a lot of cases where we're, say, we're just not sure in terms of evidence, and we make a charitable evaluation of people's own profession of faith and, uh, and go on from there. So there's a lot where we're not sure. Okay, well, I'm going to go on here and say one more topic because I'm not going to go on beyond this week on this outline. Um, what is the unpardonable sin? I, Jesus talks about whoever speaks, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, is guilty of an eternal sin. I'm going to, just because we're running out of time here, um, I think it is that the answer is number four, the answer is number four. It's an unusually malicious and willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit's work attesting to Christ and attributing that work to Satan. It's what the Pharisees did when they had seen Jesus' miracles. They had heard his teaching. They saw that they, they, he had done nothing but good, and still they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he casts out demons. And I think it was unpardonable because they had hardened their hearts against any evidence or reason that could persuade them that Jesus was the Messiah. So you say, well, Jesus worked miracles. I know, but I, I, I reject it. Well, Jesus has done good. He's taught good. Well, I reject it. Uh, it's from the devil. And, and so there can be in a person such a persistent, willful rejection of the truth that um, the ordinary ways that the Holy Spirit will work to bring that person to salvation have all been used, and the person has rejected it. I think that's what uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. Um, Louis Burkhoff, in a book, a systematic theology book, says, if you fear you have committed this sin, you haven't. Uh, because there's still a tenderness in your heart. There's still, there isn't that, there isn't that hardness of rejection that is adamant and says, I will not take any evidence. So I don't want Christians to be worried about that. But I think that there is a point where people can so persistently reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the witness of the gospel that um, that uh, that they're just they're not going to come to salvation. Finally, the punishment of sin. When God punishes sin, I, I want to end on this because I think there's something very helpful here. Punishment of sin serves as a deterrent against further sinning when we see that God punishes sin, and it's a warning to those who deserve it. But that's not the primary reason that God punishes sin. The primary reason that God punishes sin is that his righteousness demands it so that he might be glorified in the universe that he has created. God is the one who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. And I, I, heard, I, I heard Dennis Prager saying on a talk show just this week, if you believe in God, you have to believe in hell. If you believe in God, you don't believe in hell, 
then there's no answer for evil in the universe. That is, and I think he, that was a shortened kind of way of saying that, but I, I heard that and I thought that's similar to what I'm saying here. That is, God is just, and if there is evil that violates his character and, and, and uh, is dishonoring to him, he can't just say, oh, well, that's okay. He needs to punish it because his holiness, his justice, his righteousness demand it. And that's why God had to send Christ to take the punishment for our sin if we were to be saved. God, God couldn't just say, oh, well, forget about that. You made a mistake or you did wrong. I won't do anything about it. He had to find some way that the punishment that our sin deserved could be satisfied. And that was why God, in showing his righteousness, he put forward, Romans 3.25, he put forward Christ as a propitiation, that is a, a sin-bearing sacrifice that bears God's wrath against sin, propitiation in our place, um, to show his righteousness. Now, I think that we should be very thankful that we have a God who punishes sin. That means that heaven will be a good place. If God didn't punish sin and exclude it from heaven, heaven would be just like this, or worse. But God does punish sin, and he's going to bring us one day into a kingdom where there's no more sin or evil in our hearts or anybody else who's there in heaven, and that will be something to be thankful for. And it will show um, that in God's punishment of sin, it will show his justice and that he is, in fact, a just God. And we should be thankful for that. Okay. I am at the end. You feel up to singing? A couple of verses. Let's stand and let's stand and sing. Trent, just for a second. I'm going to I'm going to pray. I just feel like I need to pray. Lord, I I just was such a, a a weighty topic. I, I'm not sure, Lord, that um, that this presentation has really done it justice, or that we've gotten a sense of your burning infinite holiness and how grievous sin is to you and how it dishonors you. Lord, give us that sense, and then give us a great joy that you have forgiven our sins, that Christ has borne our sins and that they are forgiven. And then, Lord, in our lives this week, in our heart attitudes, in our words, in our thoughts, will you purify us and progressively free us more and more from disobedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.